This is a production of Cornell University. Yeah, let's kick it off. Let's uh, go. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is season four of the Cornell Turf Show, something that started uh, really out of necessity during the COVID pandemic when, uh, you know, Frank and I were, were looking for things to do, looking for people to see in, in any capacity, even the virtual world. Uh, now we're on season four, and, and thanks to everyone who's been listening and and enjoying the information along the way. Uh, Frank and I have really appreciated doing this. Uh, we get to talk to a lot of great people. We have guests on every week. We get to learn a lot of things. Uh, our guest this week is Dr. Arthur DiGaetano, director of the Northeast Regional Climate Center. Uh, so we're gonna get to a conversation with Art a little bit later, but I'm gonna bring in my co-host as always, uh, Dr. Frank Rossi. Frank, welcome back to season four. Good to see you all. And uh, just I'll second that, Carl. Um, this is really great because of the people we get to share it with, right? And now you got uh, three Italian guys. So with, with, without <laughs> for any further ado, without any further ado, uh, let me get to it. So as Carl said, we started this just howling at the moon, Carl and I, I think, uh, during the pandemic, just to try to support uh, guys that didn't know if you could work, uh, how could you work, how many people could work, how many people in a truck all the things that were involved in getting things done. Um, and now it's really created a body of content that someday somebody's going to mine and it, they're going to say, wow, that Rossi was stupid, but Scamenti, man, he really had it going on. So uh, I like to pick pictures. I still do it. Uh, we're very fortunate that we share these things collectively. And for those of you listening on the podcast, I've got a slide that basically shows uh uh, people laying solder on a bunker in a blizzard. Uh, and I think this is what caught us off guard a little bit. But really, in 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 honor of having a uh, a uh, wannabe meteorologist with us, I thought that this particular uh, tweet was was really typified something we've been talking about art for a really long time, and that is the damn wind. So so uh, I appreciated the way this meteorologist uh, presented this. And for those who don't know, art is involved. Uh, here in the Earth and Atmospheric Science Department uh, and has uh, personally trained a lot of people, maybe even this particular woman. I, I uh, was thinking those are bullets directly from my class on the, <laughs> on the Digitano wind speed scale. That's awesome. That's so great. She could be a student. I didn't, she doesn't cite you. But listen, before we get going with art and growing grass, uh, I, I want to bring in my co-host, Carl, bring you back and, and also say what a joy it's been working with you and especially in your new role as the urban environmental scientist, right? We're in the process of uh, hiring a new person for the state park agronomy job uh, and golf course ecosystem job. And Carl, you've assumed this new role and we're gonna give you a chance to rant uh, potentially about one of the topics I've been listening to you rant about for a little while and the golf ball's changing. So Carl, without any further ado, it's all yours, brother. Yeah, thanks, Frank. We're getting into some of these segments now as we progress in some of these seasons. I'm definitely going to get to some of the things I'm interested in, my new job capacity, ecosystem services, the uh, the value of turf grass and urban landscapes. Uh, but but the topical discussion for our golf show this week really stems from uh, the, the recent announcement from the USGA and RNA about a new golf ball. So they announced uh, really their intent to create this model local rule Basically, they want to have a golf ball for only elite competitions. We don't really know what elite competitions mean yet. Uh, that's going to go shorter, somewhere between 15 and 20 yards shorter. Uh, there's a lot of hemming and hawing about if it's good for the game, bad for the game. And I really looked at the two arguments that the USGA and RNA have made to um, 
sort of reason why this is something they should do. And the first argument really has to do with uh, the skill sets of golfers now versus back in the day and how that shifted because of the equipment and is that good or bad? I don't want to get into that today, but that's sort of their primary argument. The secondary argument is what I do want to talk about today. They say in, in their statement, they said increased hitting distances and course lengthening threatens golf's long-term sustainability. Frank, that's that's a pretty uh, interesting statement. Uh, well, they and, got in our lane, Carl. They got right in our lane. lane. Right, and we've and we've studied this. So this is what I want to get into: the idea of sustainability. For most golf courses out there, the only version of sustainability is is financial, economic sustainability. Are you making money and able to thrive? Uh, but again, we got to go back to this is competitive elite competitions, right? So when they talk about courses who are affected by the the new golf ball having to change their golf course, Marion, St Andrews, Augusta National, Cypress Point. Uh, I got a picture up here for, for those watching of a new tee box Augusta just made the 13th hole. They made a new tee box there, about 40 yards they added. They paid $30 million for that 40 yards uh, of course length. Uh, that doesn't sound to me, Frank, like a course that's struggling financially. Or well, I wish I had that 40 yards of land. I got <laughs> imagine, 50 imagine acres all the things. that much. <laughs> uh, you're paying almost a million dollars per yard to lengthen that hole. Nice. So Economic, that's that's not what they're looking for here. They're talking about environmental sustainability. Their argument is that because courses have to lengthen, they then have to maintain more golf course and that requires more resources, more inputs, pesticides, fertilizer, water, greenhouse gases, right? We've studied this, Frank. We've got two papers out now looking at uh, pesticide use and pesticide risk on golf courses. Now we've looked at it uh, sort of internationally, not even just in the US. And what our research has showed in all these cases is that the fairway uh, resource use, the pesticides we apply to fairway, the same is true for fertilizers, irrigation, uh, the greenhouse gases we spent mowing and, and applying cultural practices to these areas. The fairways are the primary driver of resource use on golf courses because they're very big, right? We may not treat them quite as intensely as the greens, but they make up such a larger area, 25, 30, 35 acres, and especially on championship courses, which have high expectations. So it'd be interesting for us to know how have courses changed, sort of how they lay their course out. Have they increased their fairway acreage over the years? It turns out this has been studied and it's been studied by the USGA. And the USGA Green Section did this a couple of years ago. They mapped courses over time using aerial images and GIS software. Uh, and then they used 80 random courses. They even had championship courses in there. And their finding was that championship courses had actually decreased their fairway acreage by six acres from their inception, despite adding 300 yards of length. Uh, that's actually the opposite of maybe what we thought, right? They were saying one of the USGA's arguments in the statement, hey, we're managing more land, that's unsustainable. From this data, we're actually managing less of that land or that fairway land, uh, which is the most resource use intensive as we know from our work. So if you get to my verdict here, is the golf ball affecting sustainability of championship courses? I'm, I'm giving that a thumbs down, Frank. That's not, that's not what's affecting the sustainability. What I will say is affecting the sustainability are these other factors, the player expectations, right? Green speeds, this comes back to. And when you look at courses, TPC Sawgrass looked beautiful last week, played beautiful, and it's super uniform, right? And that requires a lot of resources to maintain uniformity across 200 plus acres. That's what the players demand. They, they want every fairway, every green, every bunker, right? All the rough to react the same way across a, a changing landscape. That's very resource use intensive. And when, and when it doesn't happen, like Chambers Bay, you can see a couple of tweets here 
of pros uh, getting up in arms about that. So if we're thinking about environmental sustainability, Frank, there's a lot of other factors I would address. Well, it's interesting, Carl, that you know, I love this. And this is a wow, right? This is a bit of a wow, because intuitively you think, well, if it's longer, it's got to be more land, right? Because length is going to give you land. And it's so fascinating that they, by their own measure, they're not indicating uh, that that's the case. But it is rendering some of these elite golf courses irrelevant to the thing. You didn't answer the question there, brother. I'm not letting you go. Should there be two different types of balls? That, that's a different question. What I wanted to answer was, was why are they doing this? And I, I'm not going to buy the sustainability argument. Good. If you want to say, hey, we want to go to Cypress Point and we want to stay at Pebble and we don't want to change St. Andrews, that's much more of sort of a, uh, you know, touchy-feely conversation that, yeah, yeah. that uh, you know, I, I could either take it or leave it. I really don't care. Okay, so no verdict on bifurcation. Uh, it's, it, I don't buy the arguments they're making. I'll, I'll put it that way. There you go. All right, so listen, let's talk about golf, and a lot more people are playing. Uh, now that Jim Copenhaver and his Pellucid group is involved with National Golf Foundation, they got really good round numbers. Round numbers are up dramatically from when we started this show. And we're holding on to a lot of people that came back to the game. So for number one, the thing to say is at the end of 22, we had about 40 million more rounds, about 12% more rounds, 13% more rounds uh, in, in 2022 than we did when we started the pandemic. What's fascinating is the weather sucks, Art. The weather sucks. Right. So look at this data from from golf playable hours from Pellucid over a, a long period of time. Now, golf playable hours is you got enough light and Jim's uh, secret sauce says the weather factors are good for golf. Right. That you'll go out and play golf. So places like San Diego are pretty much only well, not this year, but pretty much only <laughs> governed by how long the day is because it's 70 and sunny every day in San Diego for the most part. So obviously you'd imagine a high volume of playable hours there. And at the other end, a very low volume of playable hours, even here in central New York, where we thought we'd be playing already. When you look at the long, the 10 year average, we have less time uh, people for to play golf and look at 2022 nationally. It was a big drop, 10, 12%, more people playing on less time to play. So here's another way that uh, Pellucid looks at it. This is playable hours year over year. So compared to 21, 22 had 20% less playable hours in the month of November. But look at the utilization, way off the charts, 7% up year over year. More golfers with less time are really leading to concentrating traffic. And Carl has really pioneered a lot of discussion on how we should be thinking about traffic uh, in the golf business moving forward. And using this Pellucid data to demonstrate to people, hey, this is not only we got more people, they're playing in a compressed amount of time in certain places. Now, Art, here's the picture of oh, your agent. Is, is that from the School of the Mines, the one on the left? I think that's right when I first got here on the left. Oh, Holy my gosh. Crap. So we got here about the same time. Art and I are in the same tenure class, uh, oddly enough. So we share that. We met that president, Jeff Lehman, who was here for five minutes. That's probably <laughs> how we got this. That's probably how you and I got tenured. The guy probably came, he tenured us and then he left. Left. Holy Art cow. and I have been at this a while. And, you know, we started just doing conference calls and it led to being able to use uh, weather and climate data 
to try to help turf grass managers grow grass. And we've been doing this a long time. I don't think people even paid attention to it when we first started doing it, but it allowed us to begin to collect data and look at trends. And we published a paper in 07, basically foretelling what we're experiencing right now is that exactly. we have more consistent dollar spot pressure art and been a big shift in many areas to the fall as a heavy, heavy period of time. So this was really appreciant at the time to do it. Now, Here's, I'm going to try to set you up as best I can. I got winter with a question mark because it looks like it just got here and it's hopefully not going to stay very long. Looking back at the December to February time period, right? I love these ranking systems. You look at the Northeast or everything that's orange, all right, this has got to be like top five, 10% of the warmest winters we've ever had. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you do the math there, right? That period of record starts in 1895. So if you do the math, those are pretty much you know, top one, top two, actually, in, in, in most cases. Okay, so then I was a little surprised by this, um, because I was hearing about not as much snow, not as much rain, but we here in central New York, you could, you know, in central New York here, we, oops, sorry, there we go, let me get the pen, and of course, for those people uh, listening on the podcast, you can't see it, but I'm circling the central New York, where it looks almost 200% above normal, but I go on time. Long Island where Beth Page is, and they tell me it's pretty dry down there. So it's on whole. What would you say about the moisture from the winter? Yeah, I think the, the moisture from the winter helped us out a lot. If you can remember back in the fall, um, you know, most places, a lot of places in New York and New England, especially in Massachusetts, were really talking about drought. There was a lot of drought uh, as we moved into the fall. So really, uh, this map, and if you look at any of the drought maps, really show that uh, the, the winter pretty much took care of that drought. Um, so we had adequate, adequate, or if not above normal rainfall for most places, but not all places. Yeah, that's true. I mean, again, New York and our, our northern New York and New England, really good rainfall. Stream flow has jumped up. Groundwater has jumped up. So everything's looking really optimistic there. But uh, like you kind of point out, as you move further south, things don't look all that that good. And, you know, on this map, even the further south you go, uh, the worse it gets. So there is still some lingering dryness, uh, not quite drought, but but boy, right on the borderline there in Long Island and, and as you move into the New Jersey and Philly area. Temperature's been the story, and it looks like um, eight to 10 days, we're going to stall again. You know, yeah. we got this teaser at the end of February. This is off of your uh, drought page. And it also looks like we're going to be at least slightly on the dry side for a lot of the Northeast, but it looks hard to predict. I know how you feel about anything more than 48 hours. What do you want to say about predictions for the next yeah. eight to 14 I mean, as I mean, if you went through that time series of my pictures, uh, my faith in the eight to fourteen day forecast has 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 really expanded a lot. And oh. you know, I, I actually do put a lot more faith in these uh, in time. And you know, I think what you're showing the next week here, I think this is going to be short lived. Um, I mean, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have a bit of a cool down. Um, you know, today at least up here in Ithaca, it's supposed to almost crack fifty. Um, but then drop down a bit uh, as we move into the weekend and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think this one week period here that you're showing is, is you know, kind of a, I think you, you said it well, a pause, basically. Yeah, um, like a stall. 
Yeah, the other thing, just looking at it, I know the forecast temperatures again for upstate in our area next week are, are probably mid 40s, and that sounds pretty good actually. So, um, okay, but we're getting into that time of year where yes, it's below normal, but uh, uh below normal is still uh, you know, uh, getting to be not too bad, I guess. Well, so. and to your point, thank you for giving me a perfect transition. I stumbled across this data. You know how Art, we always talk about the length of the growing season and how things have changed over time and how climate change is bringing the climates of New York City, the metro area, maybe closer to the Philly area mm -hmm. on its way to the Baltimore area, right? And we're seeing that with warm season grasses slowly starting to creep up. And, and frost-free days uh, are an indication of that. So here's some data from growing season length, just looking at that. And you see a real shift in the slope here, Art. And it's the first time I've ever seen people put actual days on it. You're yeah. looking at it skeptically. You know, the 80 to 2000 period, 12 days per decade. Does that mean we've added almost a month in 30, in, in, in 40 years of almost our growing a season? Month. Yeah, right. 10 years a decade. So yeah, almost, almost a month. Um, I mean, again, um, you, you can take this graph uh, in a number of different ways. Uh, I'd argue in a lot of cases that 80 to, um, you know, to current period of time is a bit of cherry picking because there is ah. that number of years there in the 80s. And uh, what I really think is more dramatic about this graph is, you know, when you go to the 50s to the present, right? That's a nice long period of time and you have a nice consistent trend there. So, yeah. I mean... You can play games with where you're going to start things and you'll get ah. get a consistent trend but yet that can trend that trend is consistently going up well and boy aren't you the perfect guest because the topic for today are is trends and you know we've advanced some of our understanding of growing degree days in in many ways our use of them uh base 50 base 32 but this was a year where we really called into question whether our March 15 start date that we always used historically, and honestly, it really comes as an artifact from the, one, the weed control model that was for 24D. Uh, we don't use that date, I think, for base 32, but maybe we do. I don't know. I know our, our models weren't up. So here's the question for today, Art. I mean, I'm looking at I pulled this uh, yesterday. This is the proxy seed head thing from uh, Michigan State. And it's basically saying that, you know, the metropolitan New York area, southeastern New England, all the way into central Pennsylvania should be making their seed head application. So first off, how do I want to make a little more sense of, of growing degree days? It's a goofy question. When is a growing degree day not a growing degree day? But my point is about the stall. Right. We let's say we counted them since January and we had them that said we had 50 or whatever we had. Right. For the last month, it's been sitting there. Does that mean we start at zero or did we get to capitalize on the 50? And this is the question, because we base, especially in the springtime, a lot of our models on this growing degree day thing. So I want to give you a chance to sort of give us a, you know, a 101 if I was sitting in your class on growing degree days and talk about some of the sort of general issues we have and things we still need to learn before we can use these things discreetly. Right. I, I mean, I think I'd start out with, you know, a, a growing degree day has a sort of, you know, it 
they've been around for a long time, right? And they're actually a pretty simplistic measurement of really just uh, saying how far is the average temperature of a day um, basically different from some threshold that, you know, affects the grass, affects an insect, yeah. uh, you know, it's calibrated. whatever, right? Yeah, whatever it's calibrated to, right? right. It, it really needs calibration. It, it does. And, you know, I think, you know, if you've heard any of my, my extension talks or anything like that, one of the things I rant about is really using the calendar to make these decisions that are that are weather related, right? We've we've done that for for a long time, you know. Whether it's uh, you know when we chat with you, it's like oh, it's the you know I'm gonna get the date wrong. The first you know the first week in May, we need to put down uh, dandelion control or something yeah. like that. But in 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 some years that might be prudent, in other years it might not be. So so the weather is a key there. Um, I think really going back to your first question, it's really that pause. And I think, again, climate change factors into that. You know, we could be looking at a period of time, say, in January, where we do, you know, over a week or two, do accumulate a substantial amount, particularly of base 32 degree days. But then, you know, it, it, we, we plunge into the deep freeze, you know, the, the polar vortex comes over us and yeah. the rest of March and all of February are, you know, pretty much we're not collecting anything. So, you know, my question there becomes maybe I'm going to throw it back to you. What would you say in your biology class? Does the turf respond to that kind of jolt in, in, uh, in January? And, you know, when it, when it comes out of that deep freeze being covered in snow, does, does it remember that? Thank um, you for asking it, because my answer would be, I think it would be set back further. Yeah. If, in fact, those plants, and it, some of it is not understood, honestly, because it's probably a function of light. Um, you know, a, the ground sat bare when it was warm. The sun beat down. We were seeing soil temperatures are at two inches into the mid-50s, brother, on Long Island. Right. So, yeah, my feeling is those plants respond to that temperature. I don't know that we know about the potential light impact because you still are fairly shallow angle that, you know, mid late February. So so that the first thing is, I don't know. But my concern is we get going, then this stuff comes and it sets it back further. And if I was to say anything, I would not pick up. I'd say, let's just start doing it where it accumulates consistently for two to three weeks and yep. then we're back in business. You you hit the key word there, right? That's where I was going to end up. It's that consistent. I think that consistency needs to be a part of it, right? If you're going through January and you have a day here and a day there, or even into February, March, and you have a day here, that's very different than this prolonged period of time where, where you know, the biology, the turf or whatever can kind of pick up and do it. I think in a lot of cases, you know, the 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 fruit guys are maybe a little bit more sophisticated with you, yes. right? Because there they have a they have a distinct measure on, you know, right? You have this idea of chilling, right? The buds in, in an apple tree have to get a certain amount of chill. And that's when you start to accumulate the degree days. It says, all right, we've gone through the winter, we've done our stuff, we've gotten enough of this, and now I can start to wake up. But there doesn't seem to be that in 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 the case of of, of turf or, or even insects and, and things like that. So one of the things we've been talking about, uh, we have for the last couple of years, and there's there's been some research going on in um, Minnesota, particularly on this, uh, the concept of a false spring, right? That concept of false spring. 
Can you just take a minute and describe, I mean, this is a, is this a relatively new phenomenon as part of the a signal of climate change or is, have the springs always been screwed up like this? Um, I don't know if they've always been screwed up on that. It's more, um, it's more, um, it's become more prevalent in, uh, in, in a changing climate. I mean, I'll, I can go way back, right? Back in my South Dakota days, we did some work actually with, with tree rings, so long records. And that was one of the things you looked at in the trees, this idea of false springs. You could get these very, very short, small rings where the trees start to start to go crazy in the spring and then it gets really cold. And you know, we all know we count the number of rings to see how old a tree is. Right. Um, but in those cases, there's like two rings. There's that false ring because the spring started. So this has been a phenomena that has gone on, you know. For a long time right we're looking at thousand year records in some of these trees um okay. i i do think it becomes more prevalent um as 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 we move on again we did some work with um we did some work with frost risk and apples frost damage and apples and in the key thing that we see it's the variation in the temperature right we can warm up as much as we get and there's really not this idea of false spring but as the as the variance, the day to day change becomes different. That's the thing that gives you that that false spring that, you know, again, in the case of an apple blossom, they develop and then boom, you get hit with a frost and, and it's down. You know, there it's a one day thing in, in what we're talking about here. I would say with turf, we need a, a more prolonged period of time of of it being cooler and having a false spring. OK, so, Carl, are there questions? Yeah, and, and there's a great question from Jason Griffiths that goes right along with this. So he said he got some uh, some significant growing degree days in mid-February, but the soil temps at two, inch, two inches were still down at 31 degrees. Uh, yeah. you know, he's asking how much is that a key to keep the plant in, in dormancy, which for turf is good, right? We don't want it to acclimate 100%. that early because then it's going to be more susceptible to, to winter kill. What would you say right. to that, right? Yeah, yeah I, that's, I think that's that's you first start. I, in some ways, I think that's the easy thing to look at here, right? I mean, we're looking, we're doing air temperature, we're not doing soil temperature. So a good case, you could accumulate degree days in, in February, but there's a foot of snow on the ground, right? So that's the easy thing to say, hey, these don't count. Um, starting to look at the soil temperature, I mean, if the soils are frozen, um, we, we do get some data on that. So that might be another way of kind of tempering what goes on in the spring. So, Art, when you said, you know, the simplistic growing degree day calculations, um, uh, how much of a difference you think there is between doing it daily, hourly, a.m., p.m.? We had an entomologist on, Ben McGraw from Penn State, who pays attention to this a little bit. And he, he drew some attention to the differences, the way they're calculated. Can you take a minute? I mean, I think, number one, ours on our websites are daily. Right, daily. daily, right. But what about the differences in measuring them more uh, granularly? Well, I mean, I, I I have two things there. They're, they're totally going to be different, right? I mean, you you have you know you you can think of especially spring days if we're using base you know base fifty or let's you know as a degree day. You have many days in the in the mid to late spring where the the daytime temperature is above fifty but it's still below freezing at night, right? So if you average that out, then you get zero degree days, even though a good chunk of the day was in the 50s and presumably that the plants were responding to that. Okay. However, so yeah, there you do get a significant difference. I, I think the numbers we look at about maybe 10%, particularly if, if you do it hourly versus daily. Okay. However, However, it really doesn't matter that, it depends on what the models were built at. So if somebody built the model all on daily values, right? 
that's that's right that's that's what you're using in the model so if you're saying this disease this insects this whatever is going to occur at this many degree days what's really important to go back to literature and say hey how did they compute okay so in fact my question was good A, a degree day is not a degree day when there's a foot of snow on the ground and to jason's point well done a degree day is not a degree day if the soil's at 30 degrees and frozen so i think it's probably worth uh, in places like that uh really paying attention to it but at the same time you know as you get further south art right they, they have you know it's it's it seems to be progressing in the metropolitan areas, in the urban areas. Can you take one more second with our urban environmental scientist here and talk about how this warming potentially impacts grass areas around cities more than it might uh, in rural areas? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good winter to actually just go out and look at that. I'm sure if you walk around New York City or actually even on campus here, if you've been past Roberts Hall, um, the witch hazel is already in bloom. It's it's bright yellow, basically, right? And same thing. We did some more. We did some new stuff in the city where the trees are are actually in bloom. And you know that that city environment just adds so much to the temperature. It kind of tempers those fluctuations that we talk about. So um, in in those types of environments, yeah, it's it's key actually because the mass heats up, right? All that oh. paved mass, right? Yep. And it's, it's like a big old heat. It's like a big old heat sink, right? It's like, you know, sitting around the campfire and the rocks are still hot in the morning, basically. That's that's right. All right, Art. Well, there we go. The fastest 30 minutes, Carl. We defy the space time continuum. (laughs) Thanks for coming, Art. We turn right through it. Yeah. Thanks to town, Art. Uh, Always always a pleasure, Carl and Frank. Yep. It's uh, thanks. Thanks everyone for joining today. Uh, We'll be back right again tomorrow with our sports show. Uh, one of our attendees today, Ben Palmer, is going to be on tomorrow. We're going to quiz Ben on some spring, some of the spring maintenance practices he does, and a new uh, New England regional BMP document for the sports turf. Looking That's forward to it. A good conversation. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, Carl. See you, Art. This has been a production of Cornell University. On the web at cornell.edu.